Welcome, everybody, to the Ides of Macro, episode number 12. And it's my great pleasure and honour to interview uh, Tyler Neville, uh, who I've worked with in the past, have known for many, many years, and always has some absolutely fantastic insights on the macro world. Tyler, welcome. Thanks, Raj. Happy to be here. And I know some people might not know who you are. Anyone who's, for instance, watched Real Vision will probably be aware that you were there for uh, some time. But could you give us a bit of your background? Because really what's interesting for this conversation is that what you did before then and now in the post-Real Vision world, because you have been very heavily involved in markets from an institutional perspective to a hedge fund perspective from all different angles. So could you give us a little bit of a rundown of, of uh, what you've done in this space over the, uh, I won't say too many years? Yeah, sure. So... I started uh, after college uh, and I went to KBW, which is a boutique investment bank that just covers uh, financial companies. And that was really interesting. I started there in 2007, right before the financial crisis and essentially saw all these non-performing assets. I saw like the whole world of Wall Street kind of implode before my eyes and all these people were printing money and had no idea what was going on. So, you know, KBW was one of the first banks to, to call it a recession in 2008. Um, and I got a real good background there of how banks work, how financial companies work, et cetera. And, you know, one of the interesting things we'll get into later is like um, a lot of the guys from KBW during that time actually were one of the first people that ended up in like Bitcoin and, and crypto because they understood how the banking system worked and, you know, followed the evolution of kind of the, the end game of what we're seeing here. Um, and, and so that was my first job. And then I went to a hedge fund in Miami called HIG Capital. Uh, it was a private equity firm that had a public hedge fund at the time. Uh, and you know, we were short some financials on the way down, but missed the rally on the way out uh, once they started printing money. Uh, and then, you know, I was at a variety of other hedge funds, um, one in Boston, uh, and then one activist fund out in California called Mercado. It was like, um, uh, Bill Ackman spinoff run by a guy named Mick McGuire, uh, super smart. Um, and then um, I worked at Real Vision uh, for a couple of years as well because I really just love it, uh, interacting with you know the financial crowd and and learning new ideas from people all over the world. So um, and that's a, a bit of my background. Now I'm at uh, Corriente Advisors, which is a, a firm run by Mark Hart, who is probably most famous for shorting the subprime crisis in 2008. He bought uh, credit default swaps on, on Greek debt in like 2010 uh, and was one of the first macro investors in Bitcoin, I think in like 2015, 2016. So he's been on the front ends of uh, a lot of change and, you know, I'm learning from him. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think I mean, I'd love to get into this because what I always found fascinating is people who, from an investment perspective, can have maybe a, a very clear path, but then change that path as they see the world change. And I think this is something which, you know, you've, you know, you've understood as well. I'd love to get into this sort of idea of how you think our investment landscape is ultimately um, changing at the moment. Because one of the things you've talked about um, is this sort of decentralized versus centralized. And people think of DeFi, decentralized finance. But I think I'd love to hear your kind of framework, because it's not a DeFi framework. It's actually a kind of a global framework of this thing is changing and it's changing from a, a political, geopolitical perspective to an actual investment perspective, to a demographic, demographic perspective. I'd love to understand that basic overall and then we'll sort of dig down into it from there. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, a lot of my decentralized or centralized framework comes from, uh, I worked at a company called Franklin Templeton for a couple of years as well, I forgot to mention. And um, Franklin is this behemoth company, it's about a trillion in assets plus now. And what I saw there was essentially like the demographic boom of asset management. And they, they have like all these assets, trillion dollars of assets, and they're like giant aircraft carriers, right? And so working at a, a spot like that, it's like really hard to keep growing when you're a trillion dollars. You know, it's, it's, it's like any other giant tech company where it's like pretty hard to keep growing and growing and growing on infinitum. These things have grown like rocket ships for the past 15 years. They've cornered the market on, on assets and they don't sell when an asset is overvalued. They just hold it. So it creates kind of these funky side effects for markets, which we're seeing right now, which is, you know, the floats get smaller and smaller and every incremental dollar that goes into the market kind of creates maybe like a more of an asymmetric move higher. So the point about the centralization versus decentralization is essentially that, you know, these giant companies, these asset managers have grown so big. Now they have to find new frontiers to invest because they've cornered the asset. They bought the Austria hundred year bond at, you know, uh, 0.85% negative real yield. You know, they, now that bond is trading at 43 cents on the dollar. They were trying to find all these frontiers and invest in, in China, which is now, you know, we're deglobalizing and all that money is coming out of China. And so you have to basically invest on new frontiers. And that's the decentralized world, as I put it, which is, you know, higher volatility, but you should theoretically get paid a lot more coming out of that. And so what, what you're talking about there with the, the sort of passable, I guess, in some ways, what it, I think from what I, I've sort of read about this and seen people talk about it, it feels like that you know, in the world as it's gotten now and now, and I think we've now switched in the US to it's more percentage of assets are now passively managed than they are actively managed, even though trading might still be much more in the active sort of uh, mindset, the actual assets themselves have shifted. And, and it's kind of one of the distortions that seems to have created is that, let's say, I'm, the, I'm making these numbers up, but let's say... 30 years ago, $1 into the market pushed the value of the, the market up by $2. In this world, $1 might have pushed up by $5. So you've got this, effectively, this ballooning of, of market cap of certainly some, some of these tech companies, which are the big cap stocks and these passive funds or the indices. But actually, they're, they're moving further up per dollar coming in than they would have 30 years ago. Is that right? Because it's all this concentration that we've been seeing in that passive industry. Correct. And, and it's a lot of market structure issues. You know, they're not programmed to sell if something's overvalued. The supply doesn't come to the market, right? So it, it can kind of choke the float on a lot of these stocks. Like what we're seeing in NVIDIA, perhaps, is you could say it's fundamental. You know, they're growing hand over fist. But, you know, it could also be a share count thing where, you know, it just keeps getting squeezed and squeezed as money flows into the ETFs. Um, and then you have, you know, potential gamma effect where, like, if if the Wall Street bets crowd realizes you know Nvidia uh, the flo the float is choked and they buy like deep out of the money calls could that cause you know a gamma squeeze this is all you know created a massive centralization problem you know what breaks that generally is inflation um, and then you have to raise rates and you know if oil prices hit a hundred you know you might change your tune but for now as long as like inflation's coming down. Rates have not spiked. The Fed saying, you know, this is probably the end of the tightening cycle. You know, those dollars are still flowing back in. And we're also seeing, you know, 
money market funds and CDs have about $8.8 trillion of cash. You, know, you, could, you, you could probably make the argument that there's a cash bubble here where you know, everyone went to cash in 2022 and got very afraid. 2022 might have priced in the recession that we're potentially you know, could see down the line. Or this could be a massive productivity boom, which is what you'd expect when everyone's in cash is like, What's going to hurt the most amount of people is a massive productivity boom in the market screaming to new highs, which is kind of what we're seeing here. And, and that kind of brings on to because that's a really essential point here is because you know, cash on the sidelines is not really on the sidelines because it comes into the market, buys something and buys it off people who then put the cash effectively on the sidelines. But what does matter, which you alluded to there, is who's the aggressor? If the cash on the sidelines is a much more aggressive buyer than the, the people that they're buying from, then the markets will go up. But... If we've got a recession, it might be that the sellers currently in the market are more aggressive sellers than the buyers who are sitting on the sidelines. But it's still a swap over. But what really matters is who's, who's the angry buyer and who's the angry seller is going to define whether we have a bull market or a bear market. And, and you, you say at the moment, it's, um, it doesn't feel particularly recessionary. I mean, I've been predicting a recession for two years now and, and it's just not happening yet. And unemployment, you know, at these levels, you know, it needs to sh- scream higher. To, to be in a recessionary environment. Yeah. I mean, that's what's confounded a lot of people, which is, I think it probably was priced in in 2022 is the recession. You know, it, it probably overshot to the downside. And now, you know, the market's just incrementally taking that, that incremental dollar and creating this kind of, uh, you could call it a short squeeze, but I mean, productivity is going up. Like Bill Gates said the other day, you know, software programmers are becoming 50% more productive so that should flow into corporate earnings, right? I, and you have you know, this plentiful amount of cash on the sideline. As long as rates don't spike and there's no credit issues, there's no you know, massive inflation in oil, then you know, this could keep going. And do you think there, because one of the probably key points with all of this is that um, for a programmer, productivity will go up, but there might be fewer of them. So overall productivity at the national level may be relatively static, but a few people become a lot more productive through robotics, through technology. But a lot of people might lose their jobs. You get this inequality. Do you think that's that's going to be one of the risks that we see? Because ultimately, whether we have everybody benefiting or just a few people benefiting and people effectively getting sidelined, kind of double-edged sword, less pressure on wages from those people because they're out of the labor force, Few people with all the capital and therefore the spending power. Do you think that there's going to be, you know, do you think this is part and parcel of the problem is that that sort of imbalance, that sort of inequality, which people say they're going to address, actually might get worse before it's properly addressed. And when it gets addressed, it'll be addressed by fiscal policies, which tend to be much more inflationary than it will be by monetary policy. Because this seems to be the, one of the big battlegrounds going forward is this, is, is an inflationary mindset right because of these imbalances or is a deflationary mindset right because technology and productivity improves things? Yeah, that's a trillion dollar question. It's it's largely political, right? You know, if you have, you know, the haves and the have-nots, we're probably in a larger cycle from capital to labor. And, you know, we have, we're running $2 trillion deficits right now. So you know, everyone wasn't expecting nominal GDP to be as high as it was, but, you know, that's what you get when you're, you're deficit financing. You know, it's, it's uh, and that could keep going. You know, the thing is we're producing, you know, no one gives Biden credit, but, uh, the U.S. is producing the most amount of oil it ever has. So, like, has that kept the lid on, on WTI? Yeah, I guess I guess it has. And 
you know, as long as that happens, the U.S. can innovate um, better than the rest of the world right now. But to, to answer your question, I think it's a longer, you know, on a longer time frame. Yes, you'll probably have labor issues and fiscal uh, where, where you have to actually like force uh, government programs into certain parts of the economy to, to make you know, people more productive. But we haven't seen unemployment spike yet. You know, that's the thing. I mean, this could be massively you know, productive. There's a lot of different productive things going on, which is like the labor force is getting more productive. No one's getting fired just yet. Like you've seen large tech companies have some layoffs, but like, you know, on a macro level, it's not really you know, happening. And look at, I don't know, look at like an industrial company like Fastly is at a new high. And, you know, we don't own any of these things. We don't own NVIDIA or Fastly, just you know, to caveat it. But it's an interesting example of what's going on in the market is, you know, these, these things are making new highs and everyone's still bearish. It's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, that, that's always been the case. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting as well because one of the things which um, I'm trying to work out is, you know, let's call them the Magnificent Seven as it's six now, but whatever those Magnificent Seven are. It's been very interesting because obviously when we had that re-rating as, as yields went up, we saw all the tech companies is coming, un, coming under pressure in 2022. But then there's that sort of um, light bulb moment where I think a lot of people went, hang on a minute, these, these big tech companies all have cash, lots of cash, which at 6% interest rates or 5% interest rates earns mm-hmm. them loads of money. So higher interest rates for this group of stocks, so stocks with low debt and high cash piles, is good. And then you go, oh, but then there could be the, the slowdown environment. Well, actually lower bond yields is actually good for the growth stocks of which these tech companies are again growth stocks. So it's kind of um, winner takes it all. It sounds like, it feels like, as you say, it's the inflation story that's got to rear its ugly head. Now, at the moment, everyone's pricing in, you know, the Fed's pricing in three, the market tried to price in six rate cuts for 2024. Do you think that in this environment we're talking about, the risk is actually that the Fed sit there going, well, hang on a minute, equity market higher, unemployment under 4%, our bias should be to raise rates, not cut rates. So therefore, we're going to do nothing because actually if we, kick, if we can raise rates and the equity market can go up more and unemployment can stay at 4% or under, surely they'd actually want to do that. And so isn't the risk here that actually this scenario of things look good with a starting point of where we are actually increases the chance that we get a surprise from the policymakers that actually they, their bias towards cutting disappears and actually we start to reprice higher? Yeah, I could see that. But, you know, look, the break-evens, I'm just checking out now, you know, two-year break-evens are at like 2.3%. There's really no reason for them to raise rates anymore. They're right in the the range of their policy. So, like, I don't know. It, it, they would probably risk having more deflation. What the bond market is saying right now, like one year one year break evens are at two point five, two year break evens are at two point three, and I don't know until you see a real spike in oil, which is possible. You know. I, I don't know. Then, I suppose the argument, it's like the Julian Brigden argument, which is the financialization, which is that if the equity market goes up, they will hoard, stroke, hire more people. There is a potential risk that that's when you might start to get true wage inflation coming through a sticky wage inflation. So the, 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 the danger is that what we all want is a higher equity market, but actually a higher equity market might be something that then allows inflation to rebound from wages, which is far stickier than from commodities, which is always cyclical. Um, so I guess that's, is, is that maybe the risk here is that we actually, you know, things have been so good and 
things have ridden out. You know, we've had this rolling recession rather than a true coincidental, you know, recession of everything together. That actually the risk is that corporates just go, well, that's pretty good. Um, starting from under 4% unemployment and you know, 3% inflation, that risks that we've based in inflation. Yeah, I mean, it, it's looking like we're basing an inflation right here. And I don't, I don't see, you know, if they lower rates, you know, things could get probably a little bit more overheated. But it, it seems pretty stable right now. And I think the market's telling you that. The VIX is kind of been flatlined for a little while. And credit default swaps, CDS on high yield has been you know, very moderate. Inflows into bonds have been great. Um, so there's nothing really signifying, you know, a credit event. You know, there's something, there's some things to worry about, which is commercial real estate. Uh, that's definitely a worry, but here's the flip side of commercial real estate that no one talks about, which is, you know, if, if I'm spending 20% less money on my office space, that's a massive productivity boom. So like the NPAs on, uh, bank balance sheets for commercial real estate, the flip side of that is maybe the FANG stocks make 20% more money or whatever it is, you know, it could go follow just to a different sector. To your point, the haves and have nots, you got to pick the right sectors to be in in the productivity boom. So, you know, I think we're seeing the denouement of, of, you know, commercial real estate will probably be cities that do fine. Like you're going to get one of our giant themes is, the exodus of people from the coasts to places like Texas and you know, Tennessee and Florida, because it's just a giant tax arbitrage. And you have these, these pensions that are unfunded on the coasts and you have this $30 billion surplus in Texas and you have to compete for taxpayers, right? So everyone is moving to these States because cost of living is lower. You know, there's a productivity boom for Texas. So, my point is there are going to be winners and losers in that, that world. But like, you know, for every commercial real estate bus, there's a company that's, that, that has people working from home and making, you know, 20% more money than they would have in a, in a building. I mean, I, I work from home most of the time and then I go up to Fort Worth to the office, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great added, you know, benefit to your business. And, you know, you were talking about that, the, you know, affected in the U.S. Um, kind of sphere, talking about the these sort of movements. There's, you know, one of the big arguments, I guess, on this decentralization um, versus centralization argument is that um, at the very, very highest level, you know, we've seen you know, people say peak globalization. And everyone talks about that as a negative. It's like, oh, the, you know, all the benefits of globalization are over. But just as you were saying, there are massive benefits in places like Texas. Do you think, um, and I don't know if you're thinking about this in, in your funds, but are you thinking on a global ba basis that if we've seen peak globalization in terms of convergence, divergence probably will create some great opportunities as well. So rather than just saying it's all negative, it's actually, you know, do we see a reshoring in the U.S.? If there's a reshoring in the U.S., does that mean that Latin America becomes a really, really exciting place? I've been looking at Japan a lot over the last two years with Lycan and just saying, I like Japan. And here we are at the highest level since the very early 1990s. feels like you know, that's where this automa automation and uh, productivity boom has been playing out, forced on them by demographics. Do you see some pockets of opportunity occurring on a global basis where we might get reshoring, we might get regionalization, so that actually, rather than being negative about peak globalization, we can actually maybe be excited by some of these regional opportunities? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Japan's a, a perfect example. It's going, you know, what was it, 
30 year bear market or something. And just coming out of that and all these companies are dirt cheap. Not only that, but you know, there's a tail risk to, to Japan, which is China, obviously, but, um, you do have, uh, you, you do have an incentive. The allied world is realigning itself. And, you know, I, I think you're either pro Western culture or you're not pro Western culture and look at Argentina. That's another great example of like, you know, they're reforming that it's great natural resources down there. And a lot of the, now it's pro capitalist with, with Malay and, and you're seeing inflows there. So the point of the centralization versus decentralization is there's, there's going to be monster opportunities. Active management should be able to kill it. Like they should relatively, if you are in the right spots, the whole beta neutral hedge fund model should, should really underperform here for the next couple of years. And, I, and I've seen that, you know, I've, wor I've worked in those spots and it's, it's great. You know, these guys have the edge on all the information, the best tech, they have 40 billion in assets. But like, I think if you're, you know, smaller, if you're a jet plane and you're decentralized, I think that's probably going to be a better business model going forward in the next 10 years. Well, I've always thought, you know, one of the arguments I've made recently is that people should look at active managers in the same way that they look at optionality, which is, you know, maybe put 50%, 6% of your portfolio into an index or a fund or whatever. But then in the same way, you might have one, two, three percent in Bitcoin, have 20 percent in an active manager who you hope is uncorrelated to the S&P 500. Because what you want is when the S&P is going up 10, 15 percent, you've got your passive fund and hopefully you'll get some of that. But then you might get these two, three X returns in the big, big uncorrelated moves that might happen. It feels that you know, what we've been seeing over the last 10 years and you know, I'm plugging obviously active managers here, but it feels like everyone's just gone, oh, you know, take my brain out, go passive. The danger with that is now everything's correlated. Well, actually, you need to look for those uncorrelated returns, which is effectively what you're saying here. Go decentralized, because if you get the, these assets, these pockets of opportunity, these can be not your 10 percenters, but your 10 X's, your 20 yeah. X's, stuff like that. Yeah, well, there's actually different ways to look at it. But like the risk might actually be holding the same thing that everyone else is holding. Right. Here's an interesting gener uh, generational example. But like, have you heard of this guy, Mr. Beast? Uh, he's, he's on uh, Twitter, isn't he? In the big YouTube, YouTube's biggest person. YouTube personality, and yeah. he gets about I think it's a billion views a month. And you know, the ad dollars he basically produces from this is astronomical. Like you, you would not believe. And, and on the surface, this sounds ridiculous. It's like this guy is a new institution. We are moving from the fourth turning of mainstream media to the new institutions they're they're under our noses mm. their growth rates are absolutely shocking like i'm, I'm yeah. this guy could be he might be the most powerful man in the world but no one's talking about him he gets no mainstream public publicity and it, it's like his his feastables company went from i think it was 2 million in sales the first year to 200 million in sales like the second year Something crazy, like I don't quote me on those numbers, but it's it's multiple hundreds of millions, and and this guy's one one brand. This is happening. This is the decentralization happening before our eyes, and you know boomers don't see it because they're watching you know CNN or Fox. And, but, but that's right. I mean, I think it, and that there's there's parts of the market. You know, Bill Gurley says regulation favors the incumbent. You can make the argument that 
the asset management world has basically stultified innovation and you know cut off active management from certain pockets of the market that pr provide you know better returns you know it, it, for all weird incentives and then these pensions have these these incentives but like it creates a better opportunity if you can actually swing the bat and so i think guys like mr beast realize that there there's countless other examples of this it's, it's why you know private markets pre presents you know very interesting you know, opportunities because you have these oligarch you know monopolies that are basically like you know they're death by a thousand cuts you're slowly losing money but it's, it's like the boomer run companies and you know the possibility for growth is just not there your risk is is sitting in a seat like that and and working at a company like that instead of you know the, the bigger risk is sitting there for your whole career and getting chopped up by inflation or you know negative real wages instead of going to a new company or a new organization like you know, say mr beast i mean i think it was i think the editor of the wall street journal was in davos this would be last week compared to when we're talking and said we don't control the news anymore no. it's it's basically owned by effectively individuals via these other media outlets um and i, I guess look one of the things i always think though is that you know what what drove this is actually having near zero interest rates for so long meant that you could basically hire people. And this is the problem that you know, San Francisco had, is it hired people to do all sorts of weird jobs within the tech industry that they didn't really need. And they found that you know, when Elon Musk cut everybody and X still existed, Twitter still existed, it was like, ah, maybe we've got a little bit too much excess uh, float, as it were, um, with, with our companies. But you see, you don't actually need that. But surely the mm. argument that, that is, is the, maybe the right one is that Actually, we need interest rates which are high because one, interest rates that are high disencourages people to add debt. We don't want people to add more debt. That was a problem for the last 15, 20 years. It's like, oh, more debt because it costs nothing to, to run that debt. Now it does. Now people say, oh, but we can't finance existing debt. There's probably some level of interest rate which keeps us all a bit real. Make sure that we are, you know, we're looking for opportunities where the returns are correct. Because let's face it, over the last 15, 20 years, there have been a lot of companies which probably should never have existed or should never have been on paper as successful as they look from their share prices, given the lack of profitability that they had, but they could just roll their debt and roll their debt. Surely in a world where maybe we have interest rates that reset to a, maybe a base of, you know, we're 5.25 now, but let's say we rebase at three and a half. Isn't that going to be a good thing? Ah, that's a, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but, you know, I, I'd say... The debt problems are largely on sovereign balance sheets. You know, they're commercial real estate, regional banks, but they're not, it, a lot of the, the corporate debt has been termed out. Um, they're not as in debt as they were. And that's, you know, that's the interesting thing here is like, you know, you have these perma bears, you know, calling for you know, credit crises on, on, you know, corporate debt, no offense, Raj. I'm just kidding. But, I'm but, not a uh, bear anymore. No, no, I haven't been for at least three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, you know, could, could that come back if you have a, a deglobalizing event or a war? You know, that's always a risk that you have to take into consideration. You know, it's, it's worth looking at Taiwan Semi as a stock, as a, you know, a giant geopolitical VIX where it's like, you know, if China is going to move on, on Taiwan and, and cause you know, global you know, ripple effects, that's worth keeping on your radar because you know, that should kind of heighten the geopolitical risk. I think right now geopolitical risk is underpriced and 
you know, that's the one thing where no one, like the VIX should be higher just off that, but you know, because of the market structure, it's all quantitative and all yeah, everyone's products. selling vol all the time. Yeah, so the VIX, the VIX is probably I, I think saying to Imran Lacker, who's um, you know obviously on Real Vision quite a lot, is saying, is twenty the new thirty on the VIX? I.e., at twenty, you're actually giving the same signals from the VIX as at thirty, maybe fifteen years ago, because you're getting this suppression of volatility from all these structured products. So. It's lower than it should be. I mean, it obviously reflects the market, but maybe, uh, maybe that's the case. And, I, and, I, and it, what is there a way of, of hedging geopolitical risk? Because you know, in 25 years of covering clients, the one thing that was always the best losing trade was trying to hedge out geopolitical risk because you don't know it's going to happen. It slaps you in the face generally from the left field and you didn't know it was going to happen, which is why it's a geopolitical risk. And some people say, well, you just got to buy, you know, one Delta puts the whole time or five Delta puts and just roll them and roll them and roll them. But as we all saw in 2017, you do your nuts because you keep on blowing away premium. Is there something that is there something in the world out there? And that's not just gold, for instance, that maybe a, a decent hedge to geopolitical risk that you can think of? Well, you know, Bitcoin's an interesting proxy just because if you see the world deglobalizing and, and Saudi is buying Bitcoin, you know, which could potentially happen, you know, this is this is maybe becoming a reserve asset where, you know, if you've lost money in treasuries for, you know, two years and you're a giant sovereign that owns treasuries, you know, and you see the world kind of devolving. Bitcoin could be an interesting way to hedge, um, given you know seventy percent of the, the holders haven't really sold, and so if you get this you know these concentric circles of, of adoption where you know we saw you know, corporate you know, corporate balance sheets start putting it on. Michael Saylor's proven you know he outperformed his stock, outperformed um, holding Bitcoin, uh, so. If you get more sovereigns like Bukele is now in the money on his Bitcoin, that this asset could could actually turn into a giant. You know, with with the problems being on sovereign balance sheets, it's not crazy to say that you know Bitcoin could turn into a global reserve asset, especially in a world where you know there's war. And I, and I guess what with that is you know the argument for both gold and and um, crypto Bitcoin is that fiat currency story, which is. Sovereign balance sheets is where it all sits. And most of the, the big debts in those sovereign balance sheets are people who control their own currency and therefore can kind of, whether they call it printing or not, but basically print with impunity. Um, because if everybody does the printing, and let, let's pretend there's only 10 countries in the world, and those were 10 developed countries with 10 currencies, and everybody printed the same amount, actually all the currencies don't really go anywhere apart from versus gold and Bitcoin. And this is what I, I talk about, that concentration where you treat some of these assets like optionality. You might have still have a core in good old fashioned, boring traditional assets. But then there's that, that as you say, that on the frontier, the, the um, decentralized frontier where you get these incredible opportunities in volatility. You've got to take the risk. You've got to mm -hmm. size it accordingly. But that's where your hedges are to the mundanity of the things that everybody has. Yeah, correct. And, and you know, two interesting things that we saw, these are, you know, art mimics life, life mimics art is, you know, Henry Kissinger died and uh, Charlie Munger died. And, you know, these are two guys that you know, opened up China and shorted volatility for their whole lives. And that's usually a you know generational turning point. If we see, you know, 
that could be one of those moments where you say, okay, short vol worked for 40 years as these you know, pensions funded themselves and you know, baby boomers had all of these structural reinforcing demands for, for yield. And now, you know, if this is a first turning, if we're on the cusp of a first turning, you're going to want to have these first turning institutions. The, the risk for the next 10 years as the political uh, tides change, I mean, we're, we're going to have to open up new, new frontiers if we want to grow, you know, with all the you know, Medicare and all these, these entitlement things we have. So we, we're going to have to figure out ways to grow, which is where, where we think, you know, the best place to put your money is, is actually not just, you know, harvesting yield or, you know, buying a bond is you probably, your better risk reward is, is sitting in a, something where it could go up five or 10 X and there's a massive supply and demand imbalance that's at your back. So that's kind of what we try to hone in on here. And then in terms of, you know, you talk about the way that you're thinking about this and I'm thinking now again, high level sort of sector macro type things, but what, what do you see as let's say those frontiers of decentralization where the opportunities are, obviously you've got Bitcoin and some of the crypto space, but what, what is the sort of general thinking? Are you kind of going, it's, it is Latin America more than it's Southeast Asia, for instance. It is these tech stocks, not the tech stocks of the Magnificent Seven, because everybody owns those. It's these other opportunities. What, what sort of themes do you think are going to be, let's say, next five to ten years? So we're talking long term, not about price and entry points and exit points, just the ones that should become the big themes, you know, the cars that replace the horses. What, what sort of things are you looking at there? Well, nuclear power is super, super interesting because I think what we realized with this Russia scenario is everybody needs to be a sovereign on their own, right? You, you have to be energy efficient on your own. Otherwise, it can derail a lot of your economy. And I think that's why nuclear provides kind of a diversified basket of keeping your cost of capital low as a nation, right? It's the cheapest way to produce energy. And politically, if you have a world war going on, potentially, you know, whether that's a cold war or kinetic, nuclear will be what gets turned on. That's a frontier and there's a massive supply and demand out balance in there. You know, utilities are, are forced buyers of uranium and they keep turning on. All the politics, you know, one of the interesting things is like, you know, during World War II, the Manhattan Project was, you know, based on, on nuclear and uranium, right? And these things kind of come back. Like, it's, it's fascinating that we're starting to hear the drums of nuclear again. In the same time as, you know, the, the world is kind of coming to uh, some sort of event here, you know, whether that's China taking Taiwan or, you know, some globalized event. And, you know, as a nation you're going to probably have massive subsidies because out of prom is like, you know, I think 40% of uranium supply. If that goes offline, you know, there, that leaves a basket of, of stocks uh, in you know, North America that, that could be very good. So, you know, stuff like that is like a first turning institution where, you know, it's new. No one's, no one's really investing there. It's gone up a lot, but like, have you seen massive institutional flows? Not really. Like, you know, when's the last time you've seen a, an asset manager pump their uranium fund or, or nuclear? You know, it's, it takes a while for these things to, to turn on. And how do, you, how do you think we get to the scale? Because, I mean, it's just 
everyone's going to go down that route because I think one, one of the problems has been, you know, if you said to institutions, and I remember doing interviews for Real Vision 2017, 18, 19 on uranium, and that was that period where it was a bull story, but it just went sideways, the price. And then obviously in the last few years, it started to move. But for a lot of institutions who want to deploy lots of capital, it's still the eye of the needle. Um, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of the, the crypto space is still tricksy for a lot of people is that an institution with trillions wants to deploy you know, a couple of percent of that, and suddenly that would absolutely, you know, dis- well, not destroy, but the whole, that some of these small markets would go to the roof. Mm. Do you think it's, it's going to be difficult because the uranium story, the, the nuclear story, it's a very clear story, but it's still a very small story, which actually is a preventative um, reason for institutions to get properly involved. You know, these institutions, there's this tectonic shift, and it's not just happening in just Bitcoin or uranium, but like, I think these institutions have grown so large in other parts of the market that now they're forced, they're forced to invest in, in the frontiers because you can't go say, oh, we're going to go, Larry Fink's going to put money in China because we're not going to incentivize the Chinese, you know, uh, shipbuilding company and put U.S. retiree money there. So they have to find things that are the allied world that, that are Western, pro-Western culture, pro-capitalism. And for a while, they weren't really doing that. You know, this was a, just a sprawl based off of low fees, right? Cutting, under, cutting, cutting labor costs, cutting fees on asset management. This was a 40-year cycle. Now it's reversing. And so, yes, uranium, it, it, we're probably on the cusp of like, I got to imagine like some asset managers just thinking like, we, this, is, this could be an, a huge, huge market. Let's start a new fund there. Um, you know, we think you know, cannabis is, is, is a, a sector of ours that it's, you know, U.S. supply chain based. It's, you know, kids in the next generation don't drink alcohol. They, they just think, you know, if you look at the polls, it's really an interesting thing where, but what's kept cannabis basically uh, under, uh, underinvested is, largely the pharma industry and for every state that come, comes online for uh, legalized cannabis in the, in the U.S., I think it's like pharma takes a $10 billion hit. So the, this is all the same thing. It's, it's, it's why Larry Fink decided to do a BlackRock ETF or a Bitcoin ETF because, you know, he can't invest in China anymore. He can't go just spray and pray. You know, this is now it has to be strategic. And so, you know, this is where I think the world is, is the next five years is going to be probably old school macro winners and losers. So as you say, it might be that you get this um, great opportunity to invest in, in these, these stocks, these environments, these sectors, because inflation, the real fiscal inflation, the real fiscal policies that create inflation are still maybe another election cycle beyond the one this year away from us. So it doesn't feel like we're in the cusp of anything dramatic. Again, exogenous shocks apart. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like that's, that's going to happen yet. And do you feel that... Well, $2 trillion deficit, is, it's definitely you know, flowing through. But you know, I'm, I'm actually shocked the inflation is not worse, uh, to be honest, with all that spending. But you know, that's the power of the disinflationary forces and the productivity boom. Yeah, I mean, you can look at, um, I think it's you know, the classic change in M2. And if you see the change in M2 that we got post-COVID, 
Mm. Inflation should have probably been at 15 to 20 percent. It should have certainly been in the double digits. Now, obviously, you know, comparing these, it's always lovely doing these charts. and It's always a chart crime to sort of go, there's M2 change, there's CPI change. But nonetheless, given the size that was in there and, you know, a lot of the people who rightly predicted inflation, but they also expected that inflation to be a lot higher than the 9.1 peak that we got based on the size of that M2 shock that we got on the upside. So, you, so you're right, there, is, there are those forces um, at play, or it certainly seems that way. Um, and do you think, you know, do, you, do you turn your sights to, we've talked about Japan, but do you turn your sights to any region stroke countries outside of the US for some of these opportunities? Because it feels to me that, you know, whichever way you look at it, it's hard to actually come, come up with, you know, Europe. What would I buy in Europe? It's, it's you know, apart from yeah. saying Europe's been a dog for so long, it's got to rebound. And as you say, China, well, China, if it's still uninvestable because of geopolitical reasons, then I'm going to be nervous. Do you see any spaces out there, any places, any countries, India? Uh, you know? Yeah, I mean, Canada is an easy one. You know, I, it'll be really interesting to see what happens after Trudeau. And it feels like things are, uh, there's a choice to make there, which is, you know, do you decide to be pro-capitalist or, or not? And they do have, you know, some of the world's best natural resources on the ground, you know. Um, uranium is, is primarily found up there. And, you know, Mexico is also uh, another one. What happens in a world where, you know, you have autonomous trucking and, you know, the cost of labor in Mexico is now cheaper than China because the demographics are shifting. So, you know, Mexico could be a massive beneficiary. They're also younger, you know, they're, I think they're like mid thirties on average. So, you have you know, really good productive years and, and cheap cheap labor there. With you know, you can have a whole reshoring to Mexico. Um, yeah, Argentina is, is another interesting one. Uh, so th there's a lot of different ones, but it's 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 going to be in the midst of a war, and we're going to see. You know, I don't think China is going to go down not swinging. Uh, they're definitely investing in, in some of these countries as well, but it's hard. It's hard to pitch Europe. I got to say, like <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I, I gave I up years ago. I gave up. I mean, God, I mean, you're right. It is. I mean, the, the thing is that actually in Europe, it's always been the case outside of the UK, but the best company is still privately held. There is a reason why the, the German economy is bigger than the UK economy, but the market cap of the main index is smaller. Um, mm -hmm. Again, if you go to Sweden, if you go to a lot of certainly Northern Europe, there are a lot of good companies, but they're still in private hands. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, that, and so therefore, you know, it's, it's, there isn't anything obvious around Europe. The argument for Europe always seems to be it's underperformed, therefore it's Europe's turn. But I remember hearing that about Russia from 1998 until today. So, you know, that, that underperformance is no, is no reflection on future um, opportunity. Um, yeah. And then just finally sort of thinking about sectors. So, you, you, you know, you're talking about the sort of decentralized sectors. Is there anything that, in terms of companies there's the new there's the new companies do you see any sectors where existing companies are doing a very good job at absorbing new technologies or buying into them so for instance healthcare with new kind of new developments in terms of longevity biotechnology do you see there's, there's these opportunities because most people think uh, crypto and very new specialist com companies many of you say of which are still held privately but do you see any sectors where they are being dynamic and keeping up with trends in a way that actually a traditional investor could just say, right, that's a sector which is is moving with the moves that we're seeing in technology? Yeah, I, I think biotech is, is one that's really interesting. You know, 
this is part of picking winners and losers. You know, we're, we're macro, so it's really hard to pick really good biotech stocks. But you know, if you're just going to ask me in general, that you know, Jensen Wong invested in a recursion farm. We don't own it. Just caveat it. Um, but there's a reason this guy has it. You know, he is probably the expert in AI in the world. He invested in, in this stock. So like. I, this is an industry that is probably ripe for uh, its productivity gains. And you could probably have like, you know, if the FDA loosens up and, you know, this first turning happens, a lot of the gatekeepers come crashing down and you have data back and you have AI that can back, you know, things a lot faster. Um, so that's, that's another interesting one, you know, I'd probably place a bet on if, if I if I had a, a biotech analyst, I mean, I guess one of the dangers is, um, I mean, what if we all live to well through a hundred? I mean, yeah. doesn't that screw things up? Because you know, the whole idea is that you probably get the generational shift in wealth as the boomers you know pass away, etc. And we're we're not a, lo- a long way from that uh, scenario ourselves now. But let's say someone said to me, actually, no, Roger, you can live you know twenty years more than you would have expected for your life expectancy. Suddenly. Doesn't that change quite a few things? Again, you know, do I stay in the labor force longer than most people would have expected? Do I have to rethink my investment horizon? Yes, I do. I mean, in some ways, one of the most interesting questions could be in, in biotech. If biotech is successful, it's not just investing in biotech, but it's investing in me being older for longer. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, yeah, there's lots of you know, tangential uh, ramifications on that. So be interesting. Yeah. I mean, do you think that rather than have a you know a, a East versus West war, we'll actually have a um, old versus young civil war type thing? Do you think that the unrest will? Do you think that the unrest? And what I mean by this is rather than that, and some of the geopolitical thing is a demographic thing that's now playing out in sort of the international um, yeah. scenarios. But do you think that that actually there might be, you know, and this is this is the geopolitics, which is because you've got the demographic imbalances in so many countries now that that's going to create the political changes that create the geopolitical tensions. So ultimately, is all of this actually a demographic issue that we've got that's now starting to play out internationally? Yeah, I think, you know, these these problems are all tied in hand in hand of probably because of 40 years of globalization. But, um, you know, one thing I, I would ask you is like, are you seeing, like, I think personally, we're seeing a giant shift from the left to the right. You know, it's, it's clear that's kind of what's happening right now. And, and this is me being you know, kind of a centrist, but I think you're going to probably have 40 years of conservatism. I'm noticing a lot more uh, pro-Christian things like it, the, the growth rates of like sound of freedom or, or movies you know, tied to Christianity, people, people's values are changing here. And, you know, that's, it's kind of you know, it's a, try to be objective about this. You know, it's not, good or bad thing but i think that's largely if you were a kid in high school and you were uh told by uh an institution you know for two years of your high school career that you had to just sit in front of a computer and learn and you couldn't go to school but your you know your death rate on covid was like 0.0001 you're in hindsight you're probably thinking that was kind of a joke you know this is me like I know COVID was a big deal. I'm not like trying to downplay it, but like if you were in high school and you're, it's kind of like not necessarily the same thing, but you know, Vietnam, you had a lot of distrust in the institutions for, for that generation. And 
you know, could that be where you know, all the, the, the people who are in charge and the institutions were pretty left leaning, you know, and uh, I think that's pretty objective to say, but, and now the, the shift is happening. I think a lot of Europe largely is, is a political decision. You know, if you had 30 years of uh, kind of like moving to the left and, you know, one of the things that Peter Thiel says, he says, uh, uh, ESG equals CCP. And I think this is what I want to ask you is, uh, in Europe, you're very pro, pro ESG, generally speaking. And I think Europe has a decision to make. Are they going to be in the Chinese sphere of influence or are they going to be, you know, in the U.S. allied world sphere of influence going forward? Yes, I mean, look, the, the, one of the things that I think within all of this is that generally the world moved more centrist. So by the centrist, tending, most people think of centrist as being slightly more leftish, certainly mm -hmm. more liberal. Um, I think where, where we are moving is that I think it, there's a ratchet effect towards the right. But as we're probably going to experience in the UK this year, there will be a rejection of the right because the right has been the incumbent through all the bad things that have happened. Mm -hmm. and someone just goes, get rid of them and yeah. get the other side in. The other side... Labour Party happens to be left, less left-leaning than it has been for a long time. So, so we, you know, we might go Labour, but that's because the public's just gone, oh my God, you know, we've had how many years of Tories and Tories and Liberals, and they didn't really do that much. Most of the regions had been slightly left-leaning and are moving that other way. So I think it's just, it feels like there's that ratchet effect, but actually I think there's a rejection of whoever was leading during yeah. the times of stress is being rejected. And it just so happens that, yes, there are probably more left-leaning governments through that period, and right-leaning we're yeah. one of the exceptions of that um but I, yeah. I think the world is just moving to that sort of i think there's a realization that um and i've always said this you know with, with socialism etc is that if you have a socialism type of thing then capital dies it looks good at the point of socialists come in take the capital it looks good for a couple of years capital dies problem i have right now is that a lot of the right-leaning um uh governments or right-leaning thinkers um are actually just as happy to do left-leaning policies of yesteryear. I mean, you know, the Conservatives over the last four years in the UK were more left-wing in their policies than Labour had been before them in terms of spend, spend. I think so, it's a demographic. Maybe it's a demographic thing. Well, I think that's right. I think it is. Yeah. So the fiscal story, fiscal spending, is generally thought of as being a left-wing thing or left-ish mm -hmm. thing. And yet fiscal is what everybody wants to do. I mean, everyone you know, in the US, oh, we'll spend. We'll spend our way out of this. Yeah. And so most people are not doing what Argentina's doing, which is actually going full on into, okay, let's make this right theoretically. But they're actually going, yeah. we're right wing, we're anti-woke, and we're going to spend as well. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the problem we have is we move right, but we still have some very, very kind of spend, spend, spend policies because the younger generation, as you pointed out, as they come through, they're demanding that the inequality, generational inequality, regional inequality, just general job inequality, that's got to come to an end. Movement yeah. towards labor from capital, movement towards labor from capital is left leaning, but with a right leaning kind of mentality on yeah. the socio, social side, but on the economic side, it's more left leaning, fiscal. There, there's the irony, right? Like maybe that's the giant pendulum that you just caught there. I, I think that's, that's spot on, but we'll see if it plays out that way. It is. And it sounds like, you know, actually one of the things we should be doing is with VIX where it is. And if VIX 20 is the new 30, actually maybe VIX, you know, buying some of these either VIX calls or maybe buying long dated low delta puts is the right thing because maybe volatility will have 
maybe volatility will have more of an opportunity to the upside than markets on the downside, because it seems that every time we have a big pullback, macro prudential things come back in. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll put a bit more capital in there. We'll do a few more BTFPs or whatever they're called. I mean, do you think people should pick up on a bit of volatility? You know, maybe longer term, because it feels like we get the bout of volatility and then they come in and suppress it, but you'd still need that bout of volatility for the policymakers to come in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough. I, I think if you go out a couple months, you know, it's probably, you, know, what, you, you could make money in the market go up with, you know, the, the VIX going up, you know, VIX up, market up, because, you know, people aren't allocated, you know, they're, they're racing to get exposure. That could happen too. But yeah, I think it's, it's probably underpriced uh, around here. Um, it's not, it's not a bad way to hedge, but at the same time, you know, I don't see a lot of credit issues, you know, and if, and so you, if you have global collateral, this is Michael Howell, but like, you know, global collateral is, is going up and, you know, the CDS on, on bonds is going down. That's massively pro for massively positive for the liquidity cycle. And in that, in that sense, you know, the VIX might just keep putzing around here so uh, you know maybe maybe the thing to do then is and i, I say almost every week kind of i'm the broken record on this which is yeah. is the old stock replacement trade buy your calls on the index so you'll actually get some of the upside calls yeah. are cheaper than puts etc you've got your cash okay some of that cash in the bank you can earn four percent maybe five percent maybe yeah. put a bit of it into some of these high volatile opportunities like you've been talking about the the the, the, the frontier markets or the frontier of decentralization yeah. but you still got 6% of your capital in cash earning income. You've got a decent amount of calls, which will give you participation in the upside, and then go for frontier markets or the frontier concepts within the, the decentralized space. That's not bad. I like it, Raj. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm going to become a fund manager. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Tyler, thanks very much for having you on. Uh, having you on. Thanks very much for being on. Thanks for having you. It's uh, been great to chat to you. Um, and, you know, I, do, I think you're right. I think active management... Um, I personally feel this is a world where the opportunities are going to increase, having been, you know, we've had one trade for 10 years, which was long bonds and long tech equities up until 2020. I feel a world where there's more opportunities, more choices, more you know, differentiation, actually a good world for investors and active investors, not a bad thing. So I, I'm quite excited about the opportunities out there. Yeah, me too. Me too. We'll see if it happens. It's, uh, there's a lot of capital concentrated in uh, certain pockets. So if it gets dispersed, it could be... Uh, Pretty, pretty interesting couple of years. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for your time. Good to speak to you. Raj, take care.